Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Cobb. He's Professor of Zoology at the University of Manchester, where his research focuses on the sense of smell, insect behavior, and the history of science. He's also a historian of the French Resistance, and is the author of several books, including The Idea of the Brain, a history that we're going to talk about today. So, Dr. Cobb, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you very much, Ricardo, and hello, everybody. Okay, great. So, in your book, you talk about how people fought about the brain throughout history, where they localized it, and you mentioned at the beginning that throughout most of human history, people thought that the, the, uh, not the brain, the, the mind was located in the heart. But was that, do you know if that was true for all cultures that we know, or is it specific to Western culture? Well, that's something I was very uh, concerned to try and find out about. So the, the book is a, a history of science, and science, as we know, is very much uh, constructed in Western countries and performed by people from the West. And I was interested in trying to get access to ideas from outside of that tradition. And so uh, the problem you've got is you need sources, reliable sources. And the main sources we have in the West are written sources, but they don't go beyond uh, about 5,000, 5,000 years ago when we invented writing and started telling stories. And you can see um, is this in ancient poems, in ancient Greek writings and so on, ancient uh, Egyptian writings. To understand what people thought outside of that tradition, uh, then you've got a bit of a problem. All you can rely upon are uh, discussions with anth when anthropologists have gone and talked to indigenous peoples. And so, for example, uh, there's uh, a lot of research was done in the 19th century in the Americas, all down uh, the Americas in both continents, in which anthropologists uh, went and talked to uh, talked to indigenous peoples and asked them various questions about their belief systems. Now, we don't know if those belief systems are the same as those that were pre-Columbian contact, so before the, 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 15th, the 16th century, but they are remarkably consistent. In the, in the Americas, virtually everybody that they spoke to very clearly thought that spirit, mind, whatever you want to call it, was based in the heart. Uh, and this concords with what we know from the uh, old Greek ideas, ideas from the Middle East, from the dawn of civilization and so on. Uh, in China, they weren't particularly interested in localizing a particular function to a structure. They didn't have that, that, that interest. They would more tend to think in terms of different parts of uh, forces being present. And in particular interest, I, towards the, just before the book was published or finished, I realized that uh, I didn't know anything about, Af about uh, Australia. So I contacted various uh, uh, Aboriginal researchers in Australia and asked them where people thought mind was in the body. Was it located in the brain, in the heart? 
in the kidneys, some, uh, for example, in, uh, in, in many old parts of the Old Testament, they talk about the kidneys, the mind being in the kidneys. Um, and the response was very interesting. Uh, people said this question wouldn't make any sense because the idea of your mind, your spirit, whatever, being simply somewhere in you isn't part of their belief system. For those peoples, their connection with the land and their link with the land is incredibly important. And therefore, your spirit, soul, whatever, would also be in your land, in the hills, in where you lived. It wasn't just inside you. But uh, I think in general, when, uh, especially in more uh, settled populations, it seems very clear that in general, people around the world thought that the mind was in the heart. And we can see this in our language. So in English, uh, we have lots of phrases about the heart, you wear your heart on your sleeve, your heart's in your mouth. I'm sure it's the same in Portuguese. Uh, it's the same in every language. And that's telling us something. That's telling us that this is the old way of thinking. It's like a fossil that's still sitting there. And if you try putting the word brain into those sentences, it just sounds crazy. So we still live with that. And the reason we do is that it's partly true. If you're excited, then your heart starts racing. And you feel that, you know, if um, when I'm uh, concerned and frightened and alarmed, then it's in my stomach. And our bodies, our brains are not just kind of hovering about some you know in, in unconnected our bodies there was a very famous article a neuroscience article about a quarter of a century ago which had a title uh, the brain has a body which might seem kind of obvious but i think an awful lot of neuroscientists forget this that we have this connection with the rest of our our, our bodies and just to, to finish the best story that i i came across from this was from the 1930s when carl jung the uh the psychoanalyst who originally worked with Freud, he went out to New Mexico and he talked with uh, a leader of the, the, the Taos Pueblo. And this uh, local chief said that he thought that the uh, white people were insane, thought we were mad. And Jung was very struck by this. He said, well, wh why do you think we're mad? And he said, well, you all think that you think with your heads. And Jung was genuinely perplexed and said, well, where do you think you think? And he said, we think here. And he put his hand on his heart. Uh, final point I'd say is that one thing I don't know about and couldn't discover anything about was Africa, which, of course, is a huge continent, vast differences. And I don't know, maybe the impact of colonization in Africa has destroyed uh, elements, any any remaining elements of uh, indigenous culture there, but I found it very difficult to find anything about that. My guess would be that they too thought either that it was the heart or maybe like the Australian Aboriginal people that this was something that didn't make any sense because they have a completely different way of understanding. Yeah. Do you know if uh, in all of the cultures that you study then from which you gather the information, people think about the mind or the soul. I mean, is there any culture that you know about where people don't think about that? No, I think everybody's... Uh, no, it was always 
I mean, whether the words they would use are obviously untranslatable, and even by translating them, you 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 you, you capture them, and there may be some ambiguity from our point of view that you've now eradicated by putting a translated word on it. But so precisely this, you know, mind, spirit, soul, are they the same thing? Are they different things? But everybody has a conception of there being an inter- an inner life in your head or in somewhere in your body that is, is you. And uh, my assumption is that this goes way, way back to the very origins of humanity 300,000 more years ago. Um, in an early draft of the uh, of the book, I had a I had a whole section about shamans and about the difference between humans and animals and uh, the Lascaux cave paintings and and so on and people taking peyote and other drugs to penetrate the difference between humans and the spirit world. But whilst it was great fun writing about it, it was not to the point it got cut. <laughs> uh, I mean, you mentioned there that when we experience different emotions, different feelings, sometimes we locate them in different parts of the body. Do you know? Do you know if different people do that in different ways? I mean, could it be that some of the emotions that I feel on the heart, some people feel on the stomach or in any other part of the body? Well, there was a recent uh, set of studies which were published in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in America. Uh, a group of Finnish researchers looked at this question and they asked people where they felt various emotions. And then they kind of, they, I think they asked thousands of people and they plotted this. And there was, there was, there was variability. This might be variability in terms of interpretation of what the words meant, the emotion meant, but uh, in general, they were fairly consistent in um, pride um, and joy were tending to feel located in the chest area. Fear, anxiety seemed to be lower down. I mean, some there wasn't much about the limbs, but occasionally pe some people did report feeling emotions in their limbs which i think is a bit odd i mean i think mine would be my my main viscera were what affects you know how i perceive myself but i think that's those inter inter-individual variability is very interesting uh you'd need to do a, i think quite a consistent kind of study to separate out exactly what was going on mm -hmm. do you know if the way people locate themselves in the I mean I'm already talking about the self the mind in their bodies as anything to do or influences how they think about the self how they think about their own identity and things like that um I don't know uh my guess is that the way that uh, an aboriginal sees themselves as an individual or as a group or as a place is different from the way I generally do. Yeah. But I mean, I think you can also get some perception of that by, you know, your relation to your homeland or a particular part of nature that you uh, feel particularly in tune with, whatever that means, or, you know, happy in. Uh, I think those kind of uh, numinal, you know, very strange experiences you might have are perhaps also a perception for how some other people may uh, perceive the world all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, 
before we move on to talking about the rest of the history, about how people thought about the mind and the brain, let me just ask you a general question. Um, when we look back in history and we go over the registered history, let's say, the writings and so on, uh, aren't we sometimes limited to perhaps what a handful of people thought about the mind? I mean, mainly the intellectuals and the elites. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so. R written history is has the enormous advantage of remaining and being uh, not not accurate, but uh, because you know you're often this is written in a different language and has been translated, and translation is always not yeah. precise. Um, but no, very much so. So there's a difference between what, for example, between the 15th and the kind of 18th century, uh, Western intellectuals came to the agreement, you know, men and women, of uh, learned men and women, uh, came to the agreement that the, the, the brain was the key thing. Most people didn't really pay any attention to that because that's not, you know, they didn't read the books, they probably couldn't read, they didn't know about it, um, and their everyday experience would have shown them that it's in their heart or in their stomach or whatever if they if they even particularly bothered about it i mean the perception that you have that you're in your head i think is very much a question of what you've learned i don't think it feels that way i mean you know you you have drawings of you know little men little homunculi inside your head looking out through your eyes but the eyes are maybe the ears are about the only thing where you'd think that the rest of your feelings you know again your excitement your fear that's that's somewhere else so uh i'm not sure that i mean for most most of most of our history most people have thought that your mind was in your heart or most recorded history uh because even when the the, the clever people have done their experiments or in general just thought about it and done a bit of anatomy that doesn't alter the everyday experience of most people, which is why those words are still in our language, why they have that power. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is a most of my book is uh, up until the last uh, few decades. Most of the book is about knowledge retained and acquired by a very small group of people. Yeah. Uh, when was the first time that someone, an intellectual in this case, uh, associated the mind with the brain or localized the mind in the brain? Do we know that? Well, the first recorded, recorded. I mean, who knows what people are thinking? Uh, sure. So what we can go on is, you know, writings. And then, of course, you've only got the writings that have been preserved because an awful lot of documents... Uh, they weren't even written on documents. They may have written on tablets have been lost. So the, the, all we have, the best records we have are from the ancient Greeks. It's always the ancient Greeks. And the group of uh, physicians who are generally known as Hippocrates is not necessarily one person, but this is a, a, a name we give to a, a school of thought on the island of Kos uh, in Greece. They argued that the head was the center of thinking and they also located uh, epilepsy they considered epilepsy to be a disease of the brain now they had no proof for this 
and even the uh, you know the dissections of people were not done you could look at an animal and clearly you'd be able to see that its uh, eyeballs go into its head and that's fairly obvious from us and you'd be able to see what what they call fibers neurons greek word for fiber was neuron uh, going from the eyeball into this structure that you can eat if you want is is tasty you know if you're eating a, a sheep or something so everyday culinary experience and then the assumption but not the knowledge the assumption that we were the same kind of thing as the animals we eat would have provided some kind of insight but none of that is proof so there's no proof and indeed other greek philosophers like aristotle uh, argued this was complete rubbish and that the heart was the thing and the brain if it did anything was just kind of cooling stuff which makes a lot of sense because you don't feel anything in your brain except maybe a headache which doesn't isn't even in your brain because uh, the brain doesn't have any pain receptors but you know in your head whereas your heart's moving all the time and if you associate movement uh, with uh, most of the one of being one of the key features of the natural world which the people like Aristotle did then the brain doesn't seem to be doing much at all and it's it's the heart mm -hmm. in terms of explaining how the brain works in Western history at least was Descartes the first one to try to come up with an explanation um, yeah, well, yes. I mean, basically what, what Descartes does is to, uh, he's, he's in, in Paris in the 1630s. He's thinking about this very hard because he, was, he wasn't only a philosopher because he did do dissections and various experiments, but he's primarily a philosopher. And he can see these uh, automated statues, these hydraulic statues they had in the parks. So it's a bit like a, a bit like a theme park. You're anima very primitive animatronics, and these statues would move. Um, a you know Samson would hit a lion on a head with a club, uh, all powered by hydraulics, by the movement of water and weights. And Descartes, observing that the the behaviour looks for then remarkably realistic and you have to remember the only technology they have are very primitive clocks and water power and wind power that's all there is uh, and these movements he thinks well maybe that's how our movement works so he doesn't actually really have a theory of brain function but he has a theory of how whatever is going on up here is transferred into the limbs for example and he suggests that maybe there's some kind of hydraulic power uh, from the brain moving down these fluids going down the the nerves to produce movement now part of the problem with this is that this suggests that there's if you cut a nerve then there must be some kind of hydraulic spurt if you imagine you know cutting a, a hydraulic brake on a car or a bicycle then you'll you know there's pressure in there and scientists very quickly went away and chopped nerves in various animals. And of course, nothing comes out. There's no water in there, there's no liquid. So they were, they very quickly showed, well, it's not that. But I, I, I think, you know, Descartes often gets a bad press um, and he got an awful lot, well, got virtually everything wrong um, in terms of how the brain is functioning and it's the link, he separated out the soul and the brain and he said this intersected in the pineal gland. Um, this was the place where this, non-immaterial matter, uh, immaterial substance he called. No, I don't know what it means either. People at the time said that's rubbish, it doesn't mean anything. But the soul, this thing which was not of our world, interacted with our world through the pineal gland, which he claimed 
was unique to humans. And again, you don't have to dig around in very many animals. In fact, virtually any farmyard animal and you'll find a pineal gland. So he got a load of stuff wrong. But what's striking is that that kind of technology had been around since antiquity. So the ancient Greeks had uh, wind-powered and water-powered statues that, you know, they had birds that would sing and all sorts of stuff. But none of those very clever Greek people looked at them and thought, hmm, that's amazing. That looks just like, it looks like it's real. Maybe that's how things are working for us. So Descartes gets enormous credit for actually deliberately trying to make a connection between technology and living things and suggests that might be how it works. So throughout history, people used different metaphors to talk about the mind and the brain. Uh, I mean, particularly in the book, when you go, when you start with the 19th century, you talk about electricity, the telegraph, and then the telephone exchange, the, the computer. I mean, just a general question about this. Do you think that I mean, because the brain is so complex, talking about it with metaphors is useful or at least or maybe not useful, but rigorous. Well, I think it's it, it, it's it's not something that's limited to the brain. And mm. uh, philosophers of science have got very interested in this. And occasionally scientists get interested in it too and tend to get lost in the woods of uh, phil philosophy. Um, but if you think about it, then virtually every aspect of science uses metaphor, except for physics and maths. Uh, and maths in particular doesn't, but that's literally because it has its own language. So for most of us, and in particular for biology, when we're trying to talk about how things work, all we can do is make a comparison between what we observe and some other phenomenon to try and shed light on it. So we use a metaphor. Uh, and it's striking that physics most recently, uh, for example, in its naming of the subatomic particles, has tried to provide words that don't mean anything. So there's no baggage, there's no implication. So quark, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just a gobbledygook word. Unfortunately, they also talked about spin and up and down, which most clearly do have a, a, a weight and uh, for, the, for the uninitiated like me, suggests that these quarks are spinning and moving up and down, which they're not. Um, I know that, but for me, that kind of weighs in us. So that tells you something about metaphor. On the one hand, it's almost essential, I think, for thinking about our discoveries and our findings and trying to interpret them and come up with explanations. On the other hand, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a, bit, a bit of a cheap phrase, but I think it's quite important. So a, a, a metaphor is a framework. It's a frame that you can put things in and it helps you understand, but a frame also limits you. You can't see outside it. You're literally stuck inside this, 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 this box. So there are some things you can't think about because you're used, thinking about things. If you think about the brain as a telephone exchange, then uh, you can't think about feedback loops because telephone exchanges don't have them. So to think about feedback loops, you needed another layer of technology. Um, and this came about both through 
in fact, through electronics, which is or electronics is where the word comes from, it was invented in the late late teens, early 1920s. Um, but also with some very simple mechanical devices that made people start to think about these movement of information around circuits. But that's you see all those words: information, circuits. These are all these are all metaphor. Even movement. Nothing's actually moving. <laughs> you know, these are all metaphors. Um, which are actually you use without thinking about them and they're necessary to explain things and then when you actually start thinking about well what do I mean here then it can be quite exciting because and this is kind of the theme of the book is that the implication of all this of these changing metaphors is that there's something in the future that it will change and that new technology or, or something will alter not only the, the the experiments we can imagine, but also our interpretation of things we've already acquired. So our knowledge will alter, not because necessarily we'll discover a new fact, but a new way of looking at existing data will shift that and make it mean something else. And that's very exciting. Uh, and scientists, when they you talk to them about this, really get excited. And then they say to me, right, so what is it? What's the next big thing? Uh, and I say in the book, well, if I knew that, I'd be very rich. <laughs> I have no idea. But from looking at history and from thinking about how we uh, discuss, we, we think about nervous systems, the brain and so on, I'm utterly confident that that will happen in the end. I, I just don't know what it will be or or when it will be. The, the, the feeling, I think, amongst some parts of the neuroscience community is that we're we're getting to the end of the usefulness of the brain metaphor, uh, the computer metaphor for the brain. Uh, and uh, people, you know, there's a there's kind of a, an impasse at the moment with lots and lots of data being generated from all sorts of astonishing uh, experiments. But there's still no overall framework to put it into that everybody's happy with. So I, I think that means we're, you know, the box, the framework is getting a bit tight for us. So we're, we're beginning to push at its edges. Yeah. Do you think that artificial intelligence might play an important role there? I mean, perhaps not specifically about understanding how the brain works, but perhaps uh, several different psychological mental mechanisms that we have. I mean, we have neural networks, deep learning and all of those kinds of things. Uh, do you think that artificial intelligence systems are good models or can be good models of our our mind works? Um, I think that they haven't been so far. And part of the problem with this is that, uh, if, for example, in the deep learning experiments, uh, you know, they're these amazing programs that do astonishing things. So, you know, you've always got to remember that, I mean, and what made me... Um, try to be quite modest in the book is, you know, I don't, I cover lots of areas, most of which I have no expert knowledge in. And I'm aware that there are a lot of very clever people who've been working and thinking about this for a long time. So it's unlikely that I can come along and suddenly say, oh, by the way, this is wrong. Uh, but for example, with the uh, deep learning, the people who make them recognize that their programs, they, they don't know how they work. They literally do not know. They, they set them up. But the program is then assimilating information and looking for rules and would eventually come up with an answer that to us looks like reasoning. Yeah. But whatever's going on in there, 
I don't think is the same kind of thing as as, as we're doing. So these are remarkably powerful. Um, these are remarkably powerful techniques. But I think we need to just remember that we can be deceived by them. So, for example, there's a lot of fuss about um, GTP3, uh, which is the new, uh, or is it GPT? I can't remember. The new, the new deep learning program that can write. Okay, so this is a, uh, a program that's been uh, uh, trained on not all of the web, but an awful lot of text. It's, it, in its initial version, it was uh, trained using fan fiction. So what that means is you just give it lots and lots of texts and it then looks for patterns. And uh, there was a recent example in The Guardian and a couple of years ago, The New Yorker did this. You can give it a prompt and it will then write an article for you. So students the world over might be quite uh, excited by this, that they can get out of producing an, an essay by giving it to this program. But the problem is the machine doesn't actually understand um, what it's doing. And so the text is dramatically very good because the machine has looked for the rules of English, but the content is just a bit vague because the machine doesn't understand what it's talking about. And you can see this uh, in, um, so we have these uh, in America, they're called candy hearts. In America, in UK, they're called love hearts. These little sweets, very acidic that children like, I like them too. And they have little slogans on them like, love you forever, my love, things like that. Just cute little sentences. So an American researcher uh, gave these, this task to the deep learning program, said, OK, I want you to write me little slogans. So these are two word slogans. That's all it's got to do. No grammar. It's just going to have two, two or most three words. And then the results are absolutely hysterical. It, it says stuff about ants, fart, booby is one. I mean, it just comes up with gibberish. Because it doesn't understand, you know, if you just think about it, even a two-word slogan, a cute, a cute two-word slogan, I can say that and the listeners and viewers will immediately know what that means. But the computer doesn't understand the first thing about human society, what's cute, uh, you know, what we might like and what we might not like. And, you know, stuff about ants is probably not going to go down very well uh, if you're trying to come up with a cute phrase about love. So I think that demonstrates the limits of these kind of things is because they don't understand, because they're not conscious. Yeah. And they are simply absorbing implicit rules. Humans do that, but we also learn explicitly. And we. so I think maybe what it's going to help us understand is quite how powerful our ways of learning and the kind of uh, implications, the unstated rules that we work within and that we develop as part of our cultural learning and the way we grow to be ourselves. Maybe that's, in a way, it's, it's what these programs can't do, which would be really exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, talking now about the localization of function in the brain, going back to the 19th century, people developed phrenology. And I mean, unfortunately, as you explain in the book, it seems that it stuck in the minds of the general public because I mean, <laughs> phrenology and whenever you talk about something localized in the brain, people, I guess, immediately think about different limited sort of encapsulated areas that each of with its own function that don't communicate between them and things like that. 
the, uh, so to what extent are things or functions localized in the brain really <laughs> i don't know i don't know i mean there's so i, I explained this a, a, a bit in the book when i was when i was an undergraduate a long time ago in the 1970s um we were all we were trying to the kind of cutting edge of neuroscience which barely existed then i was a psychology student um was were models of vision and in particular trying to make machines that could see uh, and could pick out and understand uh, foreground and background and detect shapes and so on and one of the things that we all accepted was that a hierarchical model of recognition of visual objects couldn't work so this was based on the early ideas of uh, Hubel and Wiesel who in the 90, late 1950s and 1960s showed that you have and we have this this was in the cat but humans have it as well you have detectors that in your brain that can detect straight lines at different angles and as you descend in the the brain then different cells are responding to small components and kind of implicitly, you could imagine, well, okay, I could put that together. And if I put a number of these things, these receptors together and had another uh, unit connected to them, that could detect a straight line or a, an angle or a square. And that seems to make some kind of sense. And then you think about it a bit. And the joke was, this was a joke that was portrayed in the, uh, it was written in the late 1960s, that in the end, you'd have to have a cell for your grandmother. Because, you know, you can recognize your grandmother, but of course, you don't just recognize your grandmother looking at you like we're talking now. You can recognize your grandmother if she's standing on her head, uh, if she's riding a horse, if she's playing the banjo. So you'd have to have a, a cell for every conceivable representation of your grandmother. And clearly that doesn't work. So the idea of the grandmother cell was ridiculed. And this was something we all accepted. And then uh, about 15 years ago, researchers studying uh, human patients who were about to be operated on to relieve their epilepsy these patients very kindly allowed the researchers to poke around in their heads with an electrode i'm not sure i would um and they showed people various images various faces all sorts of things and they were recorded from single cells and most notoriously in one patient they found a single cell that responded only to photos of Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> it, it wasn't interested if Jennifer Aniston was in a photo, photo with Brad Pitt. It just had to be Jennifer Aniston. So an incredible degree of precision. In another patient, there was a cell that only responded to the Sydney Opera House. Uh, in another, uh, it was uh, Halle Berry, the actress. Uh, in another, it was a mathematical equation, which is just bizarre that you should have cells that, have that degree of precision um so that suggests there is very strong localization of function but there's a there's a kind of optical illusion going on here in that because we're recording from one cell that doesn't mean to say it's the only cell that was interested in jennifer aniston this was part of a network of millions potentially of cells and the difference between jennifer aniston and somebody who looks remarkably like her would be a kind of overlap of these two networks. And you, you know, you'd be able to distinguish them by a whole set of some cells that wouldn't be activated. Um, so there is localization, but it's also distributed. Mm -hmm. And 
part of the striking thing is that even in the things we are confident, really are confident, are localised. And there's, there's two things I think we are really, really confident about. I'm doing one of them now, and that's speech. Yes. So that's the first place that was absolutely confidently localised is Broca's area and the front left-hand side of the brain. If you have a stroke there, you're liable not to be able to produce speech. And that tell, there's two things, however. This was discovered in 1860. First, we have no idea how Broca's area does what it does. So the fact that it's there doesn't necessarily mean to say we've got any insight into function. Uh, and it's not a, a kind of separate module. It's integrated. But strikingly, it's not re reciprocated on the right-hand side of the brain. So it's, we've got lateralization, which is very unusual. But also, we've got uh, areas for comprehension of speech, speech, which are separate, which are different. Um, and again, that's lateralized. But what they're actually doing, we don't know, and how they do it. And I think that's rather striking that 140 years later, no, sorry, 160 years later, <laughs> We know this for a fact, and it's one of the few kind of solid bits of uh, structure and function we're confident of, uh, but we don't know how it works. And, and, and that's one reason why, I mean, I think people are very unfair about some uh, parts of neuroscience, especially the fMRI studies. These are the bits where you see the brain lighting up. Yeah. And there is a lot of problems with that. But let's leave that to one side. I think the biggest critique of it is to say, so what? Okay, so this you know i don't know watching somebody playing ping pong is located in a particular part of the brain and how does that help us how does it tell us what is happening and of course the answer is it doesn't uh, even if these structure these functions were very very precisely localized which in general they aren't when you look at them in great detail uh, even even something like uh, the visual system so the visual cortex at the back of the brain which is clearly devoted to studying uh, to processing visual signals, receives input from audio signals as well. Mm -hmm. Our olfactory sense, which is what I study, our olfactory sense has recently been shown in the last couple of years that there are top-down influences on the activity, the very earliest processing of our senses from other areas of the brain. So they're influencing because context, I guess this is what it is, context matters. In the case of the vision and the uh, auditory components. This was shown very early on by Hubel and Wiesel and others. And I guess it's because the cats they were studying, you know, what is a cat really interested in? It's interested in movement and noise. Anybody who's got a cat knows this. If you, you know, if you make a movement and you make a noise, they get absolutely onto it because that's what a, the noise that a, 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 a prey item would make. So our senses are localized, but they're not. And I think in general, it's, I mean, that's my kind of get out answer is that there is localization of function, but it's distributed. <laughs> okay. And we don't know how any of those functions really work. I think that's the key thing. Yeah. And what about neuroplasticity? I mean, from what I've read, it seems that different areas of the brain or different functions have different degrees of neuroplasticity and some can be done in different areas than they are done usually. Uh, but, I, I mean, to what extent is neuroplasticity important for us to understand how the brain works? Well, um, it's a remarkable challenge. And 
part of the problem is that many of these studies are based on very small samples because you have a patient, in particular in humans, you have a patient who has had a particular operation, who has made miraculous recovery, or who has part of their brain excised. So the most amazing thing, this isn't in the book because it, it came out after the book was published, uh, there it was, there's a, a, a young British woman who is about to go to university. And when she was about three or four, uh, she had half of her brain removed because she had because of, I can't remember what the exact problem was, but basically she said the whole left hand side of her brain removed. Now, mm. given what I've just said about localization of function, that should mean that she shouldn't be able to speak. Yeah. But she's perfectly normal. She's going to university and has got absolutely no problem as well. So what that's saying is there's something about the brain's, I mean, plasticity. I mean, you know, the brain's organizing itself. Now, that sounds kind of hippy-dippy, and I don't really know what it means, but that's telling us something that interactions and trying to uh, perform certain activities can lead to new networks. My guess is, and this is highlighted in her case, is that this is much more likely if you're young. I mean, we know brains are plastic. Um, you know, if you try learning a language, you know, young children are sponges for languages. You speak a language around them and it just goes into their head. Once you get past your 20s, learning a new language or learning a musical instrument is incredibly difficult. I mean, there's certain skills we can learn when we're older, but, you know, maths, music, language, which are for weird reasons connected. Once you, you're an adult, you find it very, very hard. The critical period in which there is this plasticity has gone and your, you know, your, your brain is much more gelled. But as I said, there are these cases of people having uh, strokes or other terrible injuries which have led them to make extraordinary recoveries. So it can, uh, even in individual cases, there can, you know, quite serious clinical cases, there can sometimes be amazing recoveries. And I, I mean, we don't know and understand the first thing about that. You obviously you can use a mouse model and uh, injure the mouse and then see how it recovers. But I guess these events are probably in general quite rare, which is one reason why we attach such significance to them. They, they, they hop out. Uh, in adults, I think this is you've got to be incredibly lucky. In children, my guess is it's much more likely. So if you have a, a congenital problem, it may be that you can recover from that uh, during your adolescence and so on. Yeah. Uh, I don't know to what extent this has to do with localization, but what do you think about the idea of modularity of the mind? Do you think that mm. that's a useful idea? It's a useful way to think about the mind and to approach it and even to understand a bit better how the brain might have evolved? Yeah, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not terribly keen on mind modules. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> the mind is just the brain. I mean, yeah. You know, it isn't it is nothing else but neurons. There's nothing else in there. I mean, OK, maybe there is. Right. That is an article of faith. What I've just said, that is what I assume. That is my materialist starting point. Now, I cannot demonstrate that. But uh, the fact that, you know, you can alter the brain's activity and you get a change in perception and experience. 
So you can, for example, uh, there are re re studies in which, again, they've been stimulating patients before they're, they're operated on. And this produces the most extraordinary feelings sometimes. So there's one recent study in which people, the only way they could describe it is that they, they suddenly felt enormously strong as though they were to face some terrible uh, challenge uh, either fighting something or swimming out to save their life or something. And they had this enormous, overwhelming, positive, powerful feeling that they were about to overcome. And this only happened, it happened in more than one patient, if one very, very particular area of the brain was stimulated. And that's kind of weird. So that really does, you know, it, that that shows you that our emotions and feelings and our thoughts in the end are simply composed of neurons. I mean, and I do this with my old factory work. You can, you can demonstrate this. But um, how that mean, what that means about the way the mind works, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, the, the brain would have to be modular, I think, and I'm not convinced that it is beyond the general, well, this bit tends to focus on processing this sensory modality, this on that sensory modality, this bit seems to do something to do with speech, for example. And the more complex aspects of our thinking, uh, our imagination, it's been much harder to try and localize them to particular areas. And people generally do this by fMRI studies, which are very crude, but even so, if we just take them at face value, uh, there's a very recent study, they, they got a num whole number of patients to listen to a set of stories, and then they recorded how the brain was responding to different words, different concepts, different ideas, and uh, there was very little localization that was really made much sense. So I'm, I'm not entirely, I'm certainly not one of the evolutionary psychology approach, but I mean, we're animals, right? We've evolved and the brain's evolved with us. And uh, my, my, my objection is, I guess, probably more to do with the particular views that people have had about, in particular, uh, their ideas about there being uh, some kind of uh, past, uh, this Pleistocene past that we grew up in in Africa. I think they, they tend to be kind of myths rather than rooted in reality. Uh, but, for example, sexual selection will have shaped us. I mean, that's, that's obvious. Uh, and we can see that not simply in uh, the, the, the difference in, in, in sex roles we can see in society, but, you know, we're animals, so that will have done something. And it it will have left some kind of mark in our genes and in ultimately our brains. What that is and how, how determined, how constraining that is, is another matter. And the variety of human sexual behavior across time and space, for example, would tend to suggest that it's, it is fairly, the link between genes and uh, structure is fairly, and, and behavior is fairly loose because we do all sorts of stuff. Uh, and as far as we can tell, always have done. Every generation thinks it's invented sex and all its uh, varieties, but no, no, not at all. So uh, tell us now about the studies you've done on the nervous system of Drosophila maggots, because th those were very interesting. And what were the kinds of insights that you got from them about how neurons work particularly? 
Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm a bit of a fraud. I don't actually work on the brain. I've written a book about the brain, but um, I, uh, I mean, the reason why I don't work on the brain is that there's an awful lot of people. One, it's very complicated. Two, there's an awful lot of people working on it. So it's very competitive. Um, and one of the things about being a scientist is you need to find your niche. You need to find a place that you can develop your work uh, without having you know either cleverer or better equipped or richer or whatever groups just whooshing in and stealing all your 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 work if you if you can't collaborate them with which is the best solution uh so what i've been doing recently is looking at how the very initial stages of olfactory processing works so how how we how we smell so and this is something that the explanation for why you'd use a maggot um is that the you know, you can find things out in very simple systems that you can't use for ethical or complexity reasons in complex systems. So both in you and in a maggot, uh, you have you have about four million smell cells. Each of those smell cells expresses just one kind of receptor. Yeah. And it's the same thing in the maggot, except they've only got 21 <laughs> neurons instead of four million. So it's much simpler. And I can put a, a uh, an electrode into one of those cells and record from a single cell. So I know how a single cell, what message it's sending to the brain. And one of the things about those uh, receptors is that each receptor can detect more than one kind of odor and each odor can activate more than one kind of receptor. So you've got a very complex combinatorial code in the periphery. And that's what we've been trying to understand. And the key thing to get over, and this is also, this hinges, explains one reason why brains and nervous systems are not digital. So we think of uh, a nervous system, you stimulate it, and it sends a signal to the brain. So like a switch, you push a switch, and you might imagine that your sense of smell, okay, I get a smell of orange, I blow it over a cell, and that will then switch on and send a message. I have smelled orange. But it doesn't work that way because, as I said, that same neuron can distinguish between orange, lemon, apple, loads and loads of different odors. So how does it do it? It can't just be an on or an off. It can't be digital, and it's not. Uh, as anybody who's recorded from neurons, sensory neurons know, they have a, they're analog. They're functioning on an analog basis. So the more intensely they're stimulated, the faster they will send a signal. And the most recent thing we've been looking at has been the, the shape of the response. So if you blow a smell over for a single second, you don't just get a square response on and then off. You get a kind of shape. And we were interested in saying, well, does that shape, which is consistent for a given odor and a receptor, is there information in there? Is there something about the shape that, in principle, the brain could decode? And this is called temporal information. So it's something about the ordering of the density of those pulses. And using lots of complicated computer software that my colleagues did, not me, uh, we were able to show that we couldn't show that the maggot uses this information. That was a, the next grant, which we didn't get, so we haven't done that yet. Uh, but we can show that there is temporal information, and that may be how the brain is able, with a, even with a single neuron, to distinguish between multiple odors. So the key thing there, you know, our computers are all digital. They're all based on either on or off. That's the yeah. fundamental part of the devices we're using now. And that's not how nervous systems work. 
So from the very the very basis of the computer, you know, and metaphor, it falls down on the, the way that brains work, nervous systems work. And this was realized quite early on when they first wanted to drew drew they first drew the parallel between computers and uh, brains it was in fact the other way around so i i was amazed by this so john von neumann mm -hmm. uh, who is the pioneer of the digital computer he's his architecture is what we're using now it's what in his everybody pocket everybody's pockets it's not alan turing alan turing was working initially on analog computers von neumann designs the digital computer and to organize it he used models of brain function that were developed in the early 1940s by McCulloch and Pitt. So he said to the American government, he said, I'm going to build you a machine, calculating machine, and it's going to work like a brain. In other words, <laughs> the computer was a brain, not the brain was a computer. Very quickly, they discovered that brains don't work that way and that kind of you know, switched over. But initially, he argued that he was going to build a computer that was like a brain. Yeah. And another thing that we haven't mentioned yet, uh, and you refer in the book, is the fact that even when we know a lot about a particular nervous system, it's really hard to predict behavior. In the book, you mentioned the case of a researcher, Eve Marder, that has studied the 30 neurons that are part of the lobster's stomach, if I'm not mistaken. And that's right, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. she can't predict behavior, right? Yeah, I mean, again, so there's a lot of the book. Um, I had to, I had vague knowledge of the, the topics uh, because I, you know, I read the scientific press, even if it's not in my subject area. So I, I knew vaguely uh, about uh, Professor Marder's work, uh, but reading it and for the the relevant chapter and really getting into it, I was uh, amazed uh, both at how smart she is and her colleagues, and also the challenge we have in front of us. So exactly what you described, they study the lobster's stomach. It's in various crustaceans, so various crabs and all the rest of it. And the stomach has got about 30 neurons. And this, these 30 neurons, so it's not the brain, it's just the stomach, produce a rhythm. On their own, they'll just start self, this emergent property, they produce two different rhythms. And these rhythms are used to power the muscles, which then grind up the food. So it's a very important function for the lobster. But they don't know how that works. And most strikingly, because they understand everything about this system, because they've been studying it for decades, they know how it's wired up, they know the neurotransmitters, so they can model it in a computer. And you can then say, okay, what happens if I take out this particular neuron, if we, we kill it or we chop it out, whatever? And you can do that on a computer, and you do that in the, in the, in the lab, and the two don't match up. So she can't predict what will happen. And she's been able to show that this rhythm, these two rhythms, aren't the only things that could come out of those 30 neurons. So the computer says, well, they could do lots of things. They don't just have to do those 30, those two rhythms. But all we see in the animal are two rhythms. So there's something we're lacking in our model that means we don't understand the link between the behavior and the organization. And what apart from just being a kind of, you know, frustrating and rather amusing uh, kind of example, what that shows is that knowing about structure 
So there's a lot of fuss about connectomes and people are always talking about trying to work out the wiring diagram. In and of itself, that's not going to tell you how things work. I mean, I think it's incredibly important because it's a map. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to know where we are and what's connected. So it, these are really important uh, projects. But it doesn't mean to say you're going to understand what's going on, because we know from the lobster's stomach that even 30 neurons and their exact connections, it can't tell us how just two rhythms emerge. Yeah. What about consciousness? Because you t you touch you touch a little <laughs> bit on consciousness on the book, but I mean I get the sense that there are certain questions that uh, are a little bit uh, bothersome to you or something <laughs> like that. I mean I mean I've had, for example, philosophers of mind on the show, and they like to talk about things like qualia and the hard problem of consciousness. I mean, what can science tell us about consciousness? Well, I think it can tell us two things. It can tell us about consciousness is that it is soluble in alcohol uh, and also anesthetics. Uh, so whatever it is, you know that if you drink too much, it goes away. And that especially if you go to hospital, those amazing anesthetists will make you breathe various stuff and it goes away and then they take the gas away and it comes back and that is that is strange so uh i mean i mean that that's a semi-serious remark uh, but what it's telling us is about the function of that's nerve that's those particular parts of our, our nervous system because clearly uh, it doesn't affect your whole nervous system and, and so on but uh i i often upset people by saying i'm, I'm not really interested in consciousness <laughs> not because not because I don't think it's it's weird. I mean, it is the most astonishing thing there is. But because of my approach to science, which is quite reductionist, not completely, but still driven by that, to try and understand simple things first, to get to the, the very basis of what's going on, which is why I study maggots, why I'm intrigued by Eve Marder's work. My guess is that most books on brain science don't refer to Eve Marder's work because it's not you know, they probably may not even know about it. It's not something that they would see as being relevant. But as for me, it's absolutely fundamental because it shows the gap there is between different kinds of knowledge. Um, so for me, studying consciousness is, uh, it's not something I want to get mixed up in because I don't know how, I wouldn't know where to start. And I think this is striking in that there are a number of theoretical models. So they're theoretical, which again, as a, an experimenter makes me a little bit antsy. Um, and these models, which are separate from the whole philosophical arguments about qualia and all the rest of it, um, these models generally don't even recognize each other's existence. So you read the articles by the various people and they don't say, ah, and our data explain this particular phenomenon better than the other theory. So it's like they're, they're in complete separate worlds. Now that's beginning to change. Just before uh, the pandemic, there was discussion from two of the proponents of the two of the main models, integrated information theory, and I've forgotten what the other one is, um, that they were going to try and come up with some predictions. Now, now you're talking. What what predictions do your theory does your theory make about certain phenomena and what happens when we test those predictions? And that I'm interested in. Uh, so and if they can, you know, 
argue with each other, then that would be a great help to people like me who are just on the outside thinking, can, I mean, I can't understand it because it's all intensely mathematical. So I make no pretense that this is a, a largely a, a closed book to me. But I think part of the problem is, see, all, all this interest in consciousness. When I was an undergraduate again in the 1970s, we didn't even bother thinking about it. We sat around in the coffee lounge, I remember, and we said, so consciousness, well, it's going to be a kind of epiphenomenon of neuronal activity. Yeah, okay, right, and we moved on. <laughs> um, and we didn't think it was a doable problem. And that is one of the key things about science is attacking something you have the tools to understand. So I, one of the things that happened in the 1970s is that Francis Crick, who had obviously co-discovered the double helix structure of DNA and then played an important role in driving the, uh, the cracking of the genetic code, from 1961, so before he won the Nobel Prize, Crick and uh, his collaborator, Sidney Brenner, basically said, it's done. Molecular genetics is done. So, they, I mean, the, the genetic code had only just been broken and yeah. the first word had been read. And they said, look, it's all done now. We don't want to be here. We don't want to be doing this anymore. Molecular genetics, who cares? What are the key problems? How, what are the really exciting things? And they both decided that nervous systems were interesting. And Brenner decides to understand a whole organism and chooses C. elegans, and he creates the whole field of C. elegans and pioneers the use of computers in understanding uh, how org organisms are organized and all the rest of it. And Crick, and this is where I kind of had left him as a, an undergraduate, Crick says, okay, well, I'm going to study consciousness. And he goes off to, uh, goes off to the Salk Institute in America. He retires from, from Cambridge, or he jumps before he had to retire. So this is the, 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 the next 30 years he spends in America working on the brain and because he's he was who he was both his intellectual reputation but also his astonishing mind i mean i was amazed so there i can't remember there's six chapters or something like that in the present heart part of the book yeah uh and crick worked his way into every chapter except the one on your on neurotransmitters and i wasn't expecting that at all he played an absolutely fundamental role in shaping our views about neuroscience from the 1980s onwards. He pioneered all of the initial deep learning programs. He was involved in them. It was because of him that people started making connectomes. He got very cross because we didn't understand how the human brain was organized. And he then says, what we should be looking for are neural correlates of consciousness. And he said, we're just going to, we're not going to try and understand everything. We're just going to try and understand one particular part. So which parts of the brain are correlated with consciousness? Mm -hmm. And you might think that's straightforward, but <laughs> we still don't know yeah. uh, all these years later. And it seems to me that, that that's a rather different approach to coming up with a complicated mathematical model that can explain everything. Uh, and we've kind of lost Crick's angle on how to study it. Uh, but, you know, I mean, what do I know? I only know about maggot noses. So uh, there are a lot of very smart people who spend their whole careers studying this. So maybe I should just be quiet and let them <laughs> get on with it. And perhaps if they can, uh, they can confront each other's theories and make very specific predictions, then we will get some insight. But I go back to the lobster's stomach. We don't understand that.
I think cracking consciousness is a long way off. Finding neural correlates, that could be done. That's possible. But coming up with an overall theory for what on earth this weird self-perception is and uh, wow uh, yeah i i've no idea i mean that i i think that's the work of centuries centuries yeah. but do you think that the hard problem of consciousness is an interesting one from a scientific perspective in any way hmm. <laughs> i'm not sure well i wouldn't want to do it i mean if i was you know if, if i was in my late 20s Or if I was choosing a PhD project, I, I wouldn't go anywhere near it. But I don't have, I mean, that's partly because, as I've indicated, most of the approaches that are being pioneered uh, are very maths heavy. And that is a weakness of mine. I, I don't have those kind of skills. Uh, maybe I could acquire them if I was younger. But, you know, my, as I said earlier, my brain is now very clearly uh, fixed and uh, I'm not going to do it. I don't think I'd I'd get into that world. Uh, I mean, as I said, they they could be right, though which one of them is right? I mean, it, one of the intriguing things about all this field is that although it's not quite, uh, this is, especially in philosophy, there aren't schools. Each philosopher is absolutely convinced that their ideas are right. But they don't have a group around them. They don't have a gang, a whole set of people who think in the same way and write about, you know, they're all different. And that's telling us, they, well, they can't all be, they can't all be right. And the fact, the chance of any one of them being right is pretty slim, I think. Um, the same isn't quite true of scientific theories of consciousness in that the main competing ones are starting to kind of gather a whole set of collaborators around and that's reassuring but i think they they need to help us all out they need to help the rest of us who don't understand this stuff make some clear predictions do some experiments and come up with clear challenges uh, to your ideas and then we'll start understanding whose ideas are the least wrong i think that's probably what we're going to find out Yeah, so uh, just one last topic, uh, talking about the future, uh, what do you think are the best approaches that <laughs> we have right now, or perhaps some of them that are even only theoretical, that will in the future push neuroscience forward? Well, as I said, I mean, this is my prejudice. So uh, as I've already ended, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, if I had a lot of money, Uh, so the British government is about to spend 10 billion pounds on 100 billion, sorry, 100 billion pounds on a, a mass testing uh, process that doesn't exist. Um, if I would, well, I'd use a lot of it for COVID research, obviously, but some of that money I would devote into trying to understand small brains. Um, and this doesn't have to be, I mean, my work has been on Drosophila for my whole career. Uh, there are researchers understanding the connector of the, of the maggot brain which is about 10,000 neurons um the adult brain flies about 100,000 so that's an order of magnitude more complex uh the drosophila maggot brain we are getting near to having a connectome of a maggot just one <laughs> just one maggot so the, and there is inter you, know, you might think all maggots are the same but there are differences between individuals but anyway we've got a connectome of a maggot and these are this is a functional map because it's drosophila we can manipulate the activity of those cells we can change what they do and researchers are using the map 
For example, something very simple. If you poke a maggot with a needle, it will roll away because it thinks you're a um, it thinks you're a, uh, a parasitoid wasp that wants to lay an egg in it and turn it into alien. So it doesn't like that. So it will roll away. So how does that work? How can it do that very simple reflex? And they are beginning, they are nearly at discovering exactly how that works and being able to model it and do all the challenges that I described we can't do at the moment for the lobster's stomach. Um, but there are also uh, the zebrafish brain is about 100,000 neuron as well. I would try and understand how very simple systems work because those simple systems, they, they're not going to tell us about consciousness. That's, I don't think my maggots are conscious. I hope not anyway, because <laughs> I'll be in big trouble if they are. Be a lot of bad karma coming to me. Um, but uh, the way they work, those nervous systems work, is are going to have elements, fundamental elements, which are repeated in more complex brains like ours. And I think if we can understand those simple systems, then more complex systems will start to come into focus. Uh, I, I don't think we should stop work on complex systems at all uh, because those connectomes are incredibly important. There's obviously a whole clinical aspect to this, which we haven't talked about, which is extremely significant. Um, and we need model animal models of humans uh, and in particular of human mental health problems as much as we can to be able to make progress on this incredibly important area. Um, but if I had a lot of money, I would focus it on trying to understand two or three very simple uh, brains in simple animals and then seeing what's common between them and then trying to come up with a theoretical model that could then apply to the vast amounts of data from electrophysiology, from fMRI, from neurochemistry that we're generating on complicated mammals, including ourselves. Yeah. Okay, so Dr. Cobb, yeah. Okay, so Dr. Cobb, just before we go, would you like to mention where can people find you on the internet and your work? Um, well, I'm at the University of Manchester, so you can find me on there. Um, if you just put my name, C-O-B-B, into the University of Manchester website. Or you can find me on Twitter, ranting about all sorts of things and posting lots of pictures of interesting and sometimes cute animals, uh, where I'm simply at Matthew Cobb, one word. Okay, so guys, the, again, the book is The Idea of the Brain, A History. Uh, run and buy it. I mean, you can order it on the internet because now we're almost all quarantined or at least spend more time at home. So don't go outside. Don't <laughs> catch the coronavirus. Avoid that. No. But buy the book. It's very interesting. And Dr. Cobb, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. And it was really fun to have you on. Thank you very much, Ricardo, and thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope everybody stays safe, wash your hands, keep distance, wear a mask. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I have started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. And I would really like to keep doing this in the long run. And so please visit my Patreon page and consider making a pledge there or go to my PayPal links in the description box and you can also make a monthly pledge there or a one-time big donation or several times big donations. 
it's as you prefer otherwise and if you like what i'm doing please share it leave a like and hit the subscription button finally i would like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and supporters the main ones karen litzke and blanchett perga larson Laurero, francis ford Hans frederick sunda ricardo vladimiro craig healy adam castle olaf alex jonathan Wiesel, david diaz anion kata jacob clinkby matthew whittingbird arno wolf Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Max Bailby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert Roberto Inguanzo, Mikel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, uh, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, Sardos Franz, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, and Dmitry Grigoriev. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, and my executive producers Michel Rujewski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.